Let me invite you to turn to Psalm 24 as we uh, we enter a new series here. Um, it's in some ways the old series because we were in the, in the Psalms of the first 23 about a year and a half ago or so. You'll tell me if I'm wrong later. And we're heading back to the Psalms for a time. We just finished up uh, a book of Hebrews in the New Testament. It's about time to head back to the Old Testament. And uh, it's always delightful to be in the Psalms around this time of year. They're kind of evergreen parts of the Bible. They're always fresh. But there's something about them that so often connects to Christmas. I'm not sure tonight, Will, but we'll find out as we go through it. Psalm 24, a classic psalm, a psalm of David. Let's come to this word. Let's hear what David has to say. Let's receive what our God has to give. Let's do so trusting that he will speak to us even now. We are told of a psalm of David, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. Of glory, the grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our God endures. Ever, let's pray and ask his blessing upon us as we come together to receive his word. Father, give us your gospel. Give us yourself. Give us your spirit that we might live by giving ourselves in return. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. There are two types of people in this room. There's a type of person who loves the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. And there's me. Sorry, that may have been too clear of a line, too bold of a line to take, but uh, I'm not a fan of the Thanksgiving Day Parade. I'll take the football or whatever, but not the the floats. I don't really like it. But I've had to admit that parades are actually biblical. Parades are biblical. You can rest assured. I don't know about Macy's parade, but parades are biblical. And one of the places we know that there's a parade is right here. This is a psalm that the academics will tell you in their wonderfully dry and boring language. They will say this was part of the fall festival liturgy. And that really doesn't stir my heart. It should probably stir your heart. But they will also tell us, I think rightly so, that David uh, would write this when the Ark of the Covenant would go out to war. And they would sing this when it came back from war and they'd won the battle. It's a parade. It's a victorious parade. It's like the old Roman triumphs. You know, Caesar would come back, I mean, defeated some enemy, and there'd be a huge party, there'd be a huge parade. And the primary burden of this text, it's a beautiful classic psalm, is that you need to be in the parade. 
This text wants you to be part of the parade. It's a parade for the church. It's a parade that you can, in fact, you should, you must, you will, even I who hate the Macy's Day Parade, I need to join in. And it shows us that three ways. In fact, I, I like the, the way the ESV's already kind of divided out the text. It's the same way in terms of the points that I have tonight. So no need for an outline in one sense, but I'll give you one anyway if you want it. Uh, this psalm tells us three things about the monarch, the king, the Lord. Three things about the monarch. Three things about our God, the king. First, how big he is. That's the first couple of verses. Second, how holy he is. The next four, verse three to six. And then finally, how mighty he is, the last stanza, 7 to 10. How big, how holy, how mighty. Let's look first at how big God is, verses 1 and 2. We stop, but the parade kind of st- starts with a big picture. It kind of, instead of zooming in on one float or zooming in on, on one, one person, it gives you kind of the whole picture of the world of this parade. And the picture is really all of God's world. The parade is a worldwide, if you can imagine a worldwide parade, everybody's involved in is this right here look at verse one it's right there the earth is the lord's and the fullness thereof in other words all the earth produces is god's the world and those who dwell therein the world all that live on it so not just the earth but everything that is produced the cows make their milk that's god's milk the trees give their fruit that's god's fruit and then we see the world and those who dwell therein. It's, it's the world, but it's also the people on the world. All the earth and all its stuff are God's. All the world and all the people are God's. The good people, the poor people, the bad people, the rich people, the American people, Chinese people, all the people. All the people everywhere are God's people. Of course, what David wants to show us here immediately off the bat is that God is not a mascot for some country. God's not a mascot for some country. That's the issue, in fact, in, 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 in our land. It's the issue over in Great Britain. There are kind of groups that think that God is really only interested in their country. So, for example, the Church of England is sometimes referred to as the conservative party, the Tory party at prayer. So tight the link is between that particular party and the Church of England. David says, no, there's not one country that has a special God link. It's all God, the whole world, everything in it. Now, verse two tells us, as we kind of get this big picture of who God is and what he has, it tells us why is everything God's? I mean, it's a big claim, but why is it God's? Look there, verse 2. Two reasons. Four. First reason, four. For he has laid or founded it upon the seas. He's laid the foundations in the seas. First reason. God created the world. He put the foundations in place. He made it. He created the world. Therefore, he holds authority over the world. He has, past tense, Laid its foundations. He has founded it. He poured the concrete. He built the foundations of everything you see in a way that you and I can never do. The best we can do is pour the foundations for the Golden Gate Bridge. The best we can do is pour the foundation, pour the concrete for some bridge. God poured the concrete for the whole world. 
But more than that, I mean, that's if you just think about that, think about the what, the, what it takes to keep the world going. That's the second thing we see here. He's established it upon the rivers. God has done more than just make. He didn't just make. You know, when you make a sandcastle, it's one thing to make the sandcastle on the beach. It's another thing entirely to defend the sandcastle against the waves. When the tide comes in, it's one thing to make the sandcastle, but you have to, if you're really devoted to it, you'll stay there. You'll protect it. You'll put your body in the middle so the water hits you and not the sandcastle if you love the sandcastle or not. And of course, what we do with our sandcastles as little kids, God has done with this world every single day, every single night, every single second. He keeps everything nice and trim. He keeps everything going. He provides, he guides, he ordains all things. He establishes it upon the waters, upon the rivers. How do you establish? Well, The focus is on the fact that God has made reality with a kind of foundation, with stability. It's stable. It's not going to fall over. It's not flimsy. God keeps all things together in his world. If if you want to join the parade that God's on right here, you have to see what kind of God is leading it. And the God who leads this parade is the God who founds and establishes and builds and secures all reality all the time. And that means there are certain rules you gotta you gotta realize. My wife and I were on holiday on vacation this past week. We went to a bookstore. <clears throat> For my sake we had to go to the bookstore. For her sake we had to go to a bookstore that had cats. And so I think there were four cats there. Um, and she I couldn't find her. I found a cat I found my wife. That's the way it works. It's very very easy. Um, and she was telling me that, that uh, a chubba had come by to this cat. I think the cat's name was Morticia, which is an interesting name. It's not in the sermon notes. Um, and the, the child had, had so much love the cat that it wanted to pet the cat, but the child didn't know how to pet the cat right. So what does it do? It starts at the tail and it goes to the head, roughly petting the cat to show its affection. And what does the cat do? Well, the cat does not show affection in return. The cat cried, the child then cried. The cat screeched, the child then screeched. Why? Because God has established this world on the rivers of you pet the cat from head to tail. You don't pet the cat from tail to head. And of course, this is an example that I always use, but it's a silly example that proves a larger point. If you continually mistreat people close to you, if you rub against the grain of personal interactions, if you rub against the grain of reality, if you're always complaining about reality, you are working against the foundations of the world. He has established it on the waters. But I think more importantly than just that principle, there's something else here. Because David and... All of Israel is fighting against a paganism that's very similar to what we suffer from today. The scholars tell me, I'm not an expert in Babylonian or Greek mythology, but they tell me that Babylonian and Greek mythology was all about how to deal with anxiety. And the problem is it didn't work. 
It didn't work. The goal of the pagan worldview was to try to control things. The problem is there was no control. Zeus could be tricked by his wife Hera. Hera could be tricked by Apollo. You couldn't trust any promise Zeus would make. That's why you can use magic or divination to get the gods to do your bidding because you can control them and they can control you. It's always a battle. And when nobody's in control, when there's no stability, when even the gods can't control themselves, there's chaos in the highest places and there's therefore chaos in your heart. There's anxiety in your heart. This is one reason, of course, my friends, that, that we live in a world that is more and more anxious every single day. The numbers, uh, the record numbers for anxiety medications bear that fact out that we are not getting more and more harmonious as a society. We're not getting more and more uh, peaceful. We're actually getting less peaceful. There is chaos in the highest parts of our world, in our views of God, and there's chaos in our hearts. But the picture here, the picture here, in the opening stanza of Psalm 24, it's calming. The real application of this section is that you should realize this parade is a calming parade. This parade is a calming parade. Because the earth and the world belong to God alone. It brings to mind Colossians 1.17. Christ is before all things. He is before all things. And in him all things hold together. Meditate on that verse sometime. In Christ all things hold together. That means you may feel like you're having 20 plates spinning. I mean, this could describe so much of our lives every week, right? You're trying to keep all this spinning together and going around and not falling. And you feel like it's chaotic. Oh, no. And one breaks. And you go into conniption fits. You have uh, anxiety. But in Jesus Christ, all things hold together. He is the glue. Why is there coherence in the world? Why is it that if you brush your teeth, they are less likely to rot out. And if you don't brush them, they're going to rot out because there's an order to the universe. Now, that doesn't mean that there won't be tornadoes. That mean there won't be hurricanes. That mean there won't be rotted teeth. Your, your teeth may rot. But it does mean that God has promised, I will provide seasons. I'll provide winter. I'll provide summer. I'll provide fall. I'll provide spring. He promised that back in chapter 6 of the whole Bible to Noah. There's a regularity to nature, which means the fact that God is in control, the fact that he rules, it has this very important effect on your life. You can be sane. You can be sane. Do you know that Christians are the only people who can really be sane in an insane world? The problem of anxiety is just one example of the insanity of our lives. And the great temptation that we face is to fail to realize that God has established all of this universe and that he holds it together. He is faithful. There is a steady hand at the tiller. You may not know what tiller is, right? I, don't, I barely know what a tiller is. It's a sailboat guy. There's a steady hand that's guiding the reins of creation. So you don't have to be anxious all the time. You don't have to be. Jesus holds your universe, your baby universe, and the whole big universe in his hands. So how big God is, 
how big God is. Second stanza, verse 3 to verse 6, how holy God is. How holy God is. I mean, this is really scary in one sense. Because you have a mighty God who has established everything, who holds everything together. Can you even come close to him? Well, what's funny is verse 3 tells us something very beautiful. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? It does it by way of a catechism, by the way. I hope you didn't notice this. This is, this, is a, this is a catechism, like we have. Question and answer. Here's the questions. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in this holy place? Question, answer, verse 4. He who has clean hands and a pure heart and so on. We'll get there in a second. But the beautiful thing just about this second stanza is that God has a hill. I don't know if you thought about that, but God has a hill. You can walk the hill. God has a hill. It's, it's theoretically possible to get up the hill. It's possible to come to God. You can go to his holy place. He is cosmically powerful. He holds all things together. He rules the fullness of the earth. And they've got a hill somewhere you can go to. He has a hill. He has a holy place. Do you have an awesome God in the real sense of that word? Yes. Do you have an approachable God? Yes. I mean, that's a Christmas sermon if I've ever heard of one. He is approachable. He is cosmic and congregational. You are a creature, a peon in one sense, and yet you can commune with God. Isn't that astounding? It's amazing. God has a hill. He has a place you can go. And yet, of course, there is a requirement. There's a verse 4. If you want to stand, if you want to visit God's house, if you want to uh, be a guest, if you want to stand in his holy place, something is required. Something is required. What's required? Verse 4, he who has clean hands and a pure heart. If I come to God's hill, I must share in God's holiness. His holy place requires a holy person. That may sound frustrating to you. It may sound like it frustrates actual worship, but it actually frees us to worship. We don't waltz into church nonchalantly. The details are important here to show us what kind of worship God loves. Who, he who has clean hands. That means our deeds, our actions. They need to be pure. They need to be clean. No faking, no hypocrisy. The second, our hearts must be pure. The inside, the inner disposition, the deeds you do on the outside, the disposition you have on the inside, our insides and our outsides have to match up. That's the point. We need integrity. A holistic, that's a popular word these days, a holistic holiness. Then we, we cannot lift up our soul. He who does not lift the soul to what is false. I think a, a better translation might be what is worthless. Similar, similar enough. You, you get the picture. The picture is this is someone who is entirely devoted to the Lord, who's not double-minded, as James might say. Who doesn't go to some other God, you know, on Monday after coming to church on Monday? And, of course, who does not swear deceitfully? We don't manipulate people with our words. Now, you, you, you get that picture in verse 4, and it's a pretty comprehensive picture. And you think about that, and you might say, how can I live up to this? I mean, this is the person that's required to come to church. I'm never going to make it in the door. 
How can I be free from inner idolatry? How can I stand under the microscope of God's scrutiny? When I put my deeds, when I put my disposition, when I put my motives and my thoughts, you know, in the Petri dish under the under his microscope, his words microscope, I, what can I do? Who can stand? The beautiful thing is that we cannot despair. The the, the great temptation there is like Joseph in the pit this morning to despair. We can't despair. Why not? Because what God demands, he gives. What God demands, he gives. There's a provision made. Of course, the Jews could look to Leviticus. We can look there. We can also look in an even better place. First John 1, 7, the blood of Jesus keeps on, continues to cleanse us from sin. God has a remedy. God has provision made for impure hands and unclean hearts. His provision. There's a way to maintain fellowship, a way back to integrity, a way back to fitting together. God has made provision. And yet, if you look at your life and you read this word and it makes you question, it makes you feel conviction. That's not a bad thing. That's not a bad thing at all. If you ask, how can I stand on God's holy hill knowing who I am? That conviction should be good, a spur to drive you back to Christ, to drive you back to his bleeding side. It's not bad we're convicted, but we shouldn't stay convicted. We shouldn't stay convicted because look at verse five. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. I think the most amazing thing, however, is in verse six. Such is the generation of those who seek him. That's the first five verses here, right? The, uh, what, what are the people who seek God like? Well, they're like these first five verses, holy seekers of a holy God. And then the last part of verse six gets a little weird. The ESV reads this, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. But very literally, woodenly, the ancient text, I think, is is better here. It reads, the seekers of your face, Jacob. The seekers of your face, Jacob. There's no, oh, God of or the God of. The writer just says, David just says, Jacob. Why would he name drop Jacob? I think because Jacob is an example of a seeker of God's face. So maybe a a way to translate is the seekers of your face who seek your face like Jacob. The author, David, puts Jacob in there to show us what it's like to seek God's face. This is a very important point. When did Jacob seek God's face? Now, we've been with Jacob uh, not too long ago, so maybe maybe you recall. If you don't, I'll help you out. Genesis 32, verse 30, Jacob at Peniel. He said, I have seen God face to face, and your servant has been preserved. Do you remember what happened by the River Jabbok? The wrestling match, the competition. What was so impressive about Jacob that evening, that long night, was his tenacity. It was not his strength. It was his tenacity to cling to God. He would not let God go. He clinged to God. He hung on. He said, I'll not let you go unless you bless me, until you bless me. Now we know, you, you know that Jacob's not a role model for everything. Maybe not even for a lot of things. 
But here, he is the example of a tenacious seeker of the face of God. We talk a lot, well, I don't know if we talk a lot, but Christians today still speak a lot about seeker sensitivity. There are churches that, that are designed since the 90s, since the days of Rick Warren and others. If you want the history, I can give it to you later. Designed around seeker sensitivity, which generally means, as far as I can tell, identify different demographics in the area around you and make every effort to appeal to what they like. Make every effort to water down any mention of God, nothing too heavy, and and make the appeal to them, and then they'll come. What's funny is the Bible does talk about seekers. And the Bible says you need to have seeker sensitivity. Yes, but what is what does a seeker look like? It's like Jacob at Peniel. And what does Jacob do at Peniel? He holds on to God. He, he's not interested in a kind of milk toast, watered down, neutered God. He he clings. He holds on. You know, one time in the Civil War, I hate to use a, a, a pro. Northern illustration, but maybe you'll forgive me. One time in the Civil War, Abraham Lincoln was uh, asked by a guy to dismiss U.S. Grant, Ulysses S. Grant, you know, because he's a drunk. He got drunk all the time. He was on duty. He, he had too much alcohol. And Lincoln, you know, just listened to the guy complain and go on and on. And he, he said at the very end, look, I cannot spare this man. He fights. Now, Lincoln did not say, I love the fact that he's drunk. He didn't approve. Of, he didn't say if he approved of that. He didn't say if he approved of his personality, his haircut. He didn't say if he approved of his lack of spit and polish. The one thing he said is, we're at war. We need somebody who fights. He fights. He's tenacious. That's David right here. We're not saying Jacob is a model for everything under the sun. But Jacob is the model of a seeker who seeks God's face. He held on for dear life. He held on to the gospel, giving God for dear life. And that's what you need. That's what we're, we need to to be a clone of Jacob. We need Jacob clones on God's hill. And what does that tell us about the church? Since we're, I mentioned, you know, church uh, um, perceptions. This assumes that the church should be filled with desperate people who come to God's hill. Desperate. Are you desperate for the holiness of God? Are you desperate to worship him? Are you you desperate to cling? Are you willing to do whatever it takes to come before his face and be blessed? Now we see the, the bigness of God. We see the holiness of God. We see finally the mighty God, the mighty God. We're getting closer in the parade. We're getting uh, a kind of closer view of the way the parade's coming back home. In verse 7, lift up your heads. Uh, Open up, gates. Be lifted up, O ancient doors. Uh, Open up. The king of glory is coming home. He needs to come in. Then we have another catechism. Who is the king of glory? Question, answer. The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Open up the doors of the city. The king has won the battle. He's coming home. God of hosts. He is the king of glory. Why is the king of glory so... I mean, it's repeated all over this place. The king of Lord may come in one, two, 
three, four, five times the king of glory. Why is that the title the psalmist uses all over, all over? King of glory. I think there's two reasons why. The first reason is that we need a king. We need a king. You remember the end of John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress? Part two. Christiana and then Mr. Greyheart, and he's leading them on, and they're heading to the celestial city. They see a man. They come across a guy who has a sword. A sword. He's all beaten up and bloodied. He's valiant for truth. He, he just fought, you know, wild head. He just fought pragmatic, it turns out. You know, the guy, the huge battle. They ask to see his sword. And uh, it's, we're told that's a, that's a Jerusalem blade. It's a weird thing to say. Uh, I think what Bunyan's getting at there is that the Christian life is both a pilgrimage and a battle. The Christian life is a pilgrimage to the celestial city, but it's also a battle. And what do you need in the battle? You need a king of glory. You need a king who's the Lord of hosts right here. You need the king of glory who is the Lord strong and mighty, who is the Lord mighty in battle. In the book of Exodus, when the the Israelites come out of Egypt, what do they call the Lord? They call him a man of war. He's a warrior who fights for his people. What does Joseph need? When he is being tempted by Potiphar's wife, what does he need when he's being tempted by power? What does he need when he's being tempted by doubt in the pit? He needs the Lord of glory. He needs the the Lord who fights for him. What do you need? You need the same thing. Here is a God who is not just a God for church on Sunday, but a God for your battles in the marketplace, in the office, at work on Monday. Here, here's a God who's not just in the piety on uh, during the week in your quiet times, but a God in the everyday battles, the, the, the issues that you face, the temptations that Joseph faces. That's what Jesus does. He comes in to be your Lord of glory. And I think the second thing, besides the fact that this is a, a, a warrior here, is the entire picture of the parade. The king is leading the parade. The way to understand the psalm really is to turn over to Ephesians chapter 4 in your New Testament. The way to understand the Psalm 24 and what's, what's happening here is to turn over to Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in, in, in verse 8. In fact, just to read verse 8 here quickly, Paul writes, he's talking about the fact that We have been called as Christians. We're to have humility. We're to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. He said that that grace has been given to us all. We have one God and Father of all. And then he adds in this quote. He says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and gave gifts to men. What Paul is doing there, he's saying, look. Jesus is the Psalm 24 parade king. He is the one who has gone into battle with Satan. He's gone into battle with sin. He's gone into battle with death. He's done so at the cross, and he's done so through his entire life. He's defeated, and he's rescued the captives. The only way you'll be able to be on God's holy hill is if you know you were a a POW. You were a prisoner of war. You were a prisoner. You were a slave under the great dragon Satan. You were a slave and you loved it because you love your sin. 
But what did Christ do? What did the king of glory do? He burst in. Isn't that what, what Newton said? My chains fell off. My heart was free. I arose, went forth, and followed thee. We sing those hymns. We need to actually know what they mean. We have to believe them. That you have been liberated. And now you can be a, a parade Christian. Yes, a pilgrimage Christian. Yes, a battle Christian. Yes, one who uh, looks to God as the Lord of hosts. Yes, the one who... who, who it comes and it's convicted by the lack of your clean hands, but ultimately the one who knows Jesus Christ has set me free. Has set me free. So I follow him. He led a host of captives and he gave gifts. He gives gifts even now. That's your God. That's the King of glory. What a beautiful song. What a glorious God. Awesome, approachable, mighty, holy Big enough for anybody, and yet close to hand. Let's pray. O great ancient of days, we come knowing that you are the God who owns all. You have all. All things on earth, all things are yours. And yet you call us to be like you, holy. We know our, our frailty, our, our lack of holiness. And yet we, we ask for you to provide that remedy in Christ. And more than that, we ask you to give us a desire, a love for you that would enable us to endure temptation, to fight alongside our great captain, our great king, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.